Coming to you live from the Business Radio X studio in Woodstock, Georgia, this is Fearless Formula with Sharon Klein. And welcome to Fearless Formula on Business Radio X, where we talk about the ups and downs of the business world and offer words of wisdom for business success. I am your host, Sharon Klein, and today's a little bit of a different take. It's not so much business as it is a personal life experience. Um, we have in the studio Ken Krause. He is the author of the book, A Marine Endures Hell, the first Marine held hostage in Iran during the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979, and the publisher of his book, who's a repeat person here on the show, Constance Payne. She is an actor, a forensics cleaner, and an entrepreneur here in Atlanta. Welcome, Ken and Constance, to the show. Hey, hey. Hey. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Thank you so much for being willing to come in. And your book has just been published this past week. Um, and it's a whole new venture for you in the publishing world. So I'm very excited to talk to you about how important this book is, not only just for the publishing experience and, and Constance's involvement with you, but just reliving and talking about how the experiences that you had while being held prisoner and what this has, how this has affected your life long term it's so fascinating to me and important because you have a perspective on different um, events that have happened all around the world that people don't have if they haven't been through what you have. So um, do you mind if I kind of get started a little bit in the beginning of, of when you were uh, a sergeant in the Marines? No, ma'am, go ahead. Okay. So you were 22 years old. Uh, you were a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. You were sent... Um, to from the embassy in Cyprus, you were sent to Tehran, um, and you were going to be helping support the Marine Detachment in Tehran. That's correct. And then on Valentine's Day, 1979, in the morning, there was a siege. Can you talk about what happened? And I don't know how much detail you'd like to go into, but please feel free to take it from there. Yeah, basically we had gone um, on a 24-hour, uh, shall we say, patrol or alert status. We realized that because so many Americans were um, getting brought back onto the embassy and the consulate to uh, be evacuated out of the country, it put a lot of stress uh, upon the, uh, the embassy uh, personnel, <clears throat> which were already down to a uh, skeleton crew anyway for what they need working. Uh, very similar about what's going on over in the Middle East now, um, in Gaza and Israel where they're pulling people out. But when you put that many people through uh, the ringer of the red tape that takes to get out of the country and to, to wait around. It really is a security nightmare. You, uh, you know, for terrorists or anybody, it, it just gives them a, a, a hard target and a, and a soft target, you know, to focus on. So, you know, with that being said, um, it was uh, the Shah had just left the country, Shah uh, Reza Pavlavi. And now that the uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was coming back in, there was a vacuum there in, in the political world. So, <clears throat> what was happening is that really nobody had a handle on what was going on, who was going to take over, you know, this new type of regime. It's a theocracy, which, you know, nobody's ever seen before. Remember, this is only 1979. This is just barely five years after um, Saigon, you know. I mean, it's, it's uh, American military, you know, wasn't looking upon with a lot of the prestige they are today. And um, the, the Vietnam veterans that came back, you know, they weren't, they weren't honored the way they should have for their service. So we've seen that. And uh, so people a lot today, 44 years ago, people couldn't even find Iran or Iraq on the map. I mean, people couldn't, you know, they didn't, ha they didn't even have operational maps at times. 
you take a look at it, it looks like this, uh, the desk here, you know, it's all one color because yeah. it's a sandbox over there. Middle East. Yeah, that's, that's the way that is, you know, and if it wasn't for the satellite, you know, navigations and the type of communications, it's hard to even find out where you're going there. So especially if it's not your embassy and, you know, I was sent from Nicosia, Cyprus, um, uh, to try to fit us in with another detachment even is, uh, is, is a kind of a, a sideways uh, show to begin with. So with that being said, we knew within about, oh, 24 hours ahead of time, something, something was brewing. Because we've, we've had riots before. Um, we'd have thousands of uh, students, demonstrators, anti-Shah or pro-comedian, whatever which way we want to look at it, uh, start over in the giant soccer stadium. And this would be 20, 30,000 people, okay? This isn't just, uh, you know, downtown, you know, a couple hundred people. You're talking thousands of people. You said you in the book that you had a feeling something was wrong that day. Absolutely, because this, uh, <clears throat> uh, the night before, uh, the, uh, the post that I was standing, is a very, uh, a very restricted area uh, on the back of the embassy, and not very many people allowed to use it to come through there. Anyway, uh, that morning when I had gotten off of duty, Something seems strange because I noticed that there wasn't the Farsi police officers that are normally out mm-hmm. there. You take a look at the embassies in Washington, D.C., you'll see just outside the embassies that they have uh, a GSA or regular police. They're not the same police officers that are in the Washington. Um, like in, at the White House or whatever. Yeah, at the White House. So when I saw that they weren't there that morning when I got off, I was thinking, you know, it's not a special day. It might be Valentine's Day, but not in a Muslim country here. I mean, what's, what's mm-hmm. up with that? Didn't think much of it until I got my uh, my relief uh, came. I gave them the brief, and then I went back to the Marine House. Actually, I, I had gotten off and uh, uh, I had some breakfast at the Caravansary restaurant. And then shortly after that, I went uh, back to the Marine House, and I was going to get some sleep. And, I mean, I was just all hell broke uh, loose, dead-ass tired. And it was cold that night. It's February up there in the Ellsberg Mountains. This is a, it's a really cold area. And uh, I remember Doug basically taking my gear off and getting ready to uh, hit the rack. And uh, so I just started to hear uh, gunfire. And I know that since the State Department had taken away uh, the Marines M-16s, our, our automatic weapons, and they'd given us shotguns. So we raised hell about that, but for the most part, we worked for the State Department. So, you know, for whatever their security uh, generation generation generic terms are going to be for whatever their threat assessment is we basically got to go with it and so i'm saying no these shotguns aren't really good for you know more than about 50 yards yeah those are close range weapons absolutely and the uh you know you're talking about a 27 acre compound you know with different buildings in it so i'm wondering what you know drastic asinine thinking this is coming up because it's not very tactical at all give or take that so when i when the firing first started we were wondering where it was, it was small arms fire. And we, we recognized that pistols basically. Then we heard rifle fire. Now, since we didn't have rifles, we were wondering, mm-hmm. and the loud crack of a rifle so close, you're wondering, you know, who, you know who's, who's got the rifles? It wasn't the Marines. Then we heard the, uh, we heard uh, uh, the radio traffic come across. They're coming over the wall, they're coming over the wall. I'm taking in battle, I'm taking in fire, in fire. Request permission to fire back. And I know who it was, it was, it was, Corporal Downey at the front gate, where there's three Marines at the, at the main gate, and they're, they're just being overrun. And then it went from rifle fired to sustained automatic weapons fire. So now you're in, you know, a full bore uh, firefight. 
So. And if you guys want to know more about the firefight, <laughs> you'll have to buy the book. I love you, Constance, because to me, it's like, of course, I, w- I want to hear and know more, <laughs> but that's why you have a book. So one of the um, quotes that you have in the book is that in, in during the gunfight, that it was both terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. Can you describe to me why that is? I mean, I know that you're trained <coughs> military to defend and fight, but to have that reality of it happening at you at, at that moment what was that like i think it <clears throat> sharon i think what happens is that uh while we were in that firefight with the uh the the attackers that were there they had the range of fire the rate of fire they had the uh they had the high ground on us and we were we were outmanned outgunned outranged we had they had everything in their favor you know element of surprise they had taken over control of our radio so we were basically incommunicado and the building where <clears throat> myself and the other two Marines were the, was the Caravansary restaurant. And that's where we kind of held up like an Alamo. And holding up there, it's just a matter of time before when they come in that they know there's just somebody in that building. You know? And then once they try to get through the building, that's where, the fire, that's where our, our little individual firefight, along with all the main other little firefights are going on, the Chancery building, the uh, Chargé d'Affaires house, all the different little buildings that were there. But and this was like this was the first firefight you'd ever been in as a marine. Before then, it was just training. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, I guess that would be the exhilarating part that like all your right. training had kind of stirred up to this. I mean, nobody wants to be in a firefight. Of course. A- absolutely. But you were ready for it. So to to, to balance what you're going to say, I think where it comes from, and I've thought about this, but you don't think about it that over the years. I didn't think about it at the time, but where you your training comes back in where your tactics are what you, and where your uh, marksmanship it, and being alert makes sure nobody's taking a bead on you or, you know, you're not getting, you're not getting shot at. You're more worried about a, rec- a ricochet or something. But when the exhilarating part of it is, is that you are in a fight that you know you want to win, and the only way you're going to win that is if you stay in it. And when you have bullets shot at you that miss you and hit everything around you, and when you shoot back and you hit somebody, you hit another human being, it's, it's, it's a sword that's got uh, a double edge to it. You had said in the book, if violence is the process that our enemies have chosen to negotiate with, then I say let's give them all that they want. Because that's what that's what they're negotiating. That's their terms. Yeah, that's what's their, the other choice? Die? You have to fight. <laughs> you have to fight. There's no diplomacy there. Even though it's a, a diplomatic mission, it goes out the window as soon as somebody starts you know, raking you with automatic fire with intent to kill you. No. Yeah, changes absolutely. things. What are you going to do? Yeah. So you had, you were in, do you mind if I talk a little bit about the uh, the next step? So you were in, in the firefight, you were taken hostage um, and you were held hostage seven days. Is that right? Eight days. Eight days. Yes, ma'am. So some of the descriptions of what you experienced and what you witnessed are just unbelievable to me. And well, I was thinking about just myself, you know, I can't stand to see anything suffer. I don't know. It doesn't, animals, nothing. But what would have happened to me or just, just an average person to witness, not even to yourself, you're suffering in your own way physically, but to watch someone suffer and be tortured right in front of you, right in front of you, and have, have that in your psychology. It's, you can't not see all of this. What effect did that have on you? Well, to back it up a little bit, the, f- the initial part of it is when uh, shall we say we had, we had about 20 Americans that were non-combatants and, 
they were basically stuck there with us at the restaurant. Uh, long story short, uh, once they once the terrorists knew that they were in there and they wanted them, yes. and they tried to come through the doors, that's what started the fight. Okay, uh, we exchanged fire back and forth, and it's just a matter of time before they were going to overrun us. You know, we just running out of bullets. It's getting down, and uh, we knew that you want to think about something that. In hand-to-hand combat, what we call cold steel, you got to sit there and think about, I'm going to have to take a knife, uh, a, a K-bar, a Marine, and I'm going to have to stick it in somebody with direct intent to take their life. And, of course, if it gets down to that, and, you know, so that's your first reality is that how close is this going to be? And then you realize that once they get through us, these Americans are going to be slaughtered. At the, at slaughtered. Oh, yeah. They're at their mercy. And so they're your, they're your charge. Yes. So when it comes down to it, and I talk in a book about the miracle. Yes. That, that first miracle is that if I had not, if I had not gotten lucky or a miracle hadn't happened that I got that guy, I, I captured him basically in the window. Yes. And, and I had, thank God he decided to want to live that day and I wasn't going to shoot him because if it went any other way, I shoot him, then we're just back to square one. So with that, it was able to get those 22, those 2022 workers safe and out of there but to to bring up where the, the first amount of what you're talking about shock and trauma was that morning that uh my friend the waiter menachi yes had, had well, a, yeah, though i will have to read more that that. yeah and when he dies in my arms he steps in front of me and he dies in my arms i mean that's the first the, the first, first trauma day. you had known him and, for a while and had been yep. so kind and to i you. just had breakfast with him mm-hmm. and then to get beat down like i did uh before i was taken out and then shot now once you're shot i don't know what happened i mean i guess nobody knows till this day i'm taking off and the how compound. confusing it is because there are moments where you're actually having some kindness happen to you and then moments where it's completely taken away you know how confusing and disorienting that must be yeah it started off as a regular day and then it just everything changed for him. yes yes and- you say that um well okay so president carter was um able to negotiate your release so i was told so you were told (laughs) you said and that leads me to the next part that there's a disparity between the media account of what was happening and what was really happening do you want to talk about that imagine that yeah really (laughs) so uh the embassy actually in fact they did not even know it had been hit and and overrun um they were trying to contact them and for whatever reason back in 1979 whatever type of communications they had they were trying to get it from the uh, bbc uh, UPI, AP, and they were the ones that were saying, hey, uh, Washington, happening. you know, your embassy's on fire over there? Yeah, you know, you can't talk to your ambassador? Do you know that the uh, American flags have been taken down, the embassy's burning? Yeah, you might want to check that out. And see, of course, I didn't know any of this because I was, t- I was taken off, the hos- uh, off to the hospital and then from the hospital kidnapped out, taken to that, that hellhole called Avin Prison. And uh, that's something, if you want to Google that and, and, and look and see what the history of that is, uh, you, you'll, it'll, it'll change your lifestyle. It's places where in the book where I talk about, uh, having to kind of come up with a different name for yes. some of these people because yes. I couldn't speak Farsi. I know I talk about, you know, Torquemada and then you look at that, that's the Spanish inquisition. That's how far it goes back of what you were saying to watching other people, uh, be tortured in such inhumane yes. ways. I said, first of all, who thinks this exactly. stuff up? How, what kind of mindset do you have to have to make it okay for you I to do know. that to I, I've never, you know. I don't, I don't know either, thankfully. You know, and then to, uh, you know, keep these people alive long enough for whether you wanted information from them, I don't know. Whether you just want to be mean and revenge, 
you know, tactics. At some point, they can't speak, and yet they're still being beaten and tortured. So it's like, what's the point? It's it's hideous. And they can't that, imagine. Um, they're doing this to their own people. Now imagine me, you know, a combat Marine who just, you know, got in a firefight, fair firefight, and we, we killed a bunch of them, and now they're going to take it out on me. So whatever I'm watching here, I'm going to get just as much or worse. And I was already wounded, already beat, and bones broken, and so I, I hadn't had anything to eat or sleep yes. in, in two days. Yes. So, you know, stripped naked, and you're looking at these days, how much more can you take? You talk about how... Um, it didn't matter what they were going to do to you. And I, I think at the end of your sentence was just, I'm a Marine. Like that ended your sentence. And I was like, oh, it's so like touched me. You know, I felt like that. I could feel the energy behind that sentence. So I'm wondering how, did you feel like you were prepared enough for what you went through? How can you prepare really? But you, no matter what you were going to experience, you were still going to stand by being a Marine. Absolutely. And uh, it all comes down to, I knew that nobody knows where I was. Yeah, you gave them you know? some truths and some, some lies I to had, confuse the heck out of them. They stripped me naked. I have no ID. I can't, you know, no dog tags ID, nothing. You know, so here I am down in this hellhole. I don't know what happened to the embassy. You're inside and you get this time deprivation because you don't get fed on a regular basis at all you don't see light whatsoever so you never know when you fall asleep you literally pass out yes. was i out for a week a month a day you know and it didn't, didn't want, matter it, didn't you it didn't know. matter mm -hmm. but when it comes down to it and you realize that you know i'm not going to get out of the situation and you know you go back to you know why you joined the marine corps and you know what your core value is inside and you say you know I signed up. I'm an American fighting man. I'm a United States Marine. I serve in the forces that guard our country and our way of life. I'm prepared to risk and give my life in their defense. And that's what you look at when you look at a blank wall. There's no mirror. And you just say, okay, however it's going to be, you know, they can, they can beat me up. They can kill me and they can eat me. And that's the worst they can do. And you just have to accept that because, I mean, it was, there was nothing else. You you know, you're in a position where all you, there's even no hope that, you know, you, you want to keep the hopes open, but you say hope for what? Because then you try to be logical. You know, nobody knows where you're at and there's no way to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And who knows what's going to happen to you in the meantime? And I said, you know, you know basically getting no medical attention whatsoever. I know my wounds are going to go septic. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die here. I know it's, it's just, the thing that bothered me the most is that, you know, when I had to accept that, you know, with a, a spiritual relationship, I just had to say that I asked, uh, I asked the Lord to say, you know, there's one thing I just really wanted to get across is that I know that, you know, whether I just die here or whether they you know, execute me, whatever it's going to be, is that they can take me out here and put me my picture in the newspapers like they have with so many others. And they can accuse me of all kinds of heinous crimes, ugly things, you know, and as, can imagine what kind of crimes and that they could accuse me of. And, um, as an American, as a Marine in the Marine Corps and, and my family, they would have no closure on that. Say there would be no defense in it whatsoever. You know, you wanted them to know the truth. And I want, yeah, I just want to say, Hey, you know, if you know, you're going to kill me, then I'm going to go out and just, you know, as, as a fighting man and just leave it at that. And he was a Marine that died and, you know, in, in the defense of the country. And if that's all that I wanted, you know, the Lord to say, cause I know I'm not getting out of here. So if that could be in my epitaph or whatever they, you know, was left in my body, even if they gave the body back, I don't know, but please don't, don't embarrass me or my family's name. And, 
you know, already there's been enough things from Vietnam and we're just five years later, so we don't need any more of this. Yeah, you wanted to die with honor. It was going to happen. Rightfully so. Pretty much. It makes me wonder how many Marines or military don't because they don't have that opportunity. Or maybe not don't, but they no one really knows their story. No one really knows their mindset. And there must be so many. Especially the ones that go uh, deep undercover in operations that we never hear about. You know, and uh, you know they, uh, when they don't come home, sometimes you kind of you don't even can't even uh, give them the accolades. You can't even talk about it. No medals conferred, and the family just said it's a training accident, or they never recover the body back. You know, that's didn't you say in the book that the two men that you were with in the um, restaurant, you didn't see them again after a certain point. Never saw them again. So we don't know. Well, I have talked to one. Well, we found him. He's up in. He's, he retired, and he's up in in, in New England. And uh, he just wants to be have a quiet life and, you know, no accolades or anything. But, but that uh, was the first time you had talked to him since you saw a gun to his head as you were being carried out. Yeah. Got you. That was when he's... Uh, it was in my office, too. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah. kidding yeah. me. Yeah, we no. did the call in my office, and we filmed it. We're going to put the um, that uh, some snippets of that conversation on YouTube. Can't imagine what that was uh, like. I was in tears. I, you, how could you not be? How could you? There are only a few people on the planet who know what that was like exactly. to be in. Um, what do you think people have a misconception about for during your time that you were a hostage, but also in the ensuing, ensuing months, 144 days, I believe it was, that four, they were, or 444 days, days, 14 months, me. yes. Yep. And, well, for one, is that the media itself doesn't go back and follow it. You know, take a look at just yesterday, Pearl Harbor. There was hardly a mention on, on media out there. My goodness, I didn't even think of yeah. that. You're yeah, right. Exactly. They don't teach it in the schools anymore. How how often are they still talking about the hostages? It was 52 hostages. What happened to them? I can name most of them, and I know the ones that have committed suicide and the ones that have passed away naturally. And, you know, they don't they don't teach it in the schools. So part of the misconception is that the uh, it, it goes away. And that, you know, that's never going to happen again. Well, um, you know, just a few years uh, ago, they attacked, they attacked the same way in Benghazi, you know, Mm -hmm. and some of the very politicians that were there. What does it matter? It mattered a lot of people when they drug the United States ambassador naked, yes, through the streets. See what I mean? So when you don't remember those things, you are bound to commit the same problems or get into the same problems and end up with same, same similar solutions. So that's the misconception is that these people won't attack, and, you know, they will attack. They will attack again. They don't attack Russian embassies. They don't attack Chinese embassies. Why is that? Why is that? They're just their misperception? Nah. Because they don't show up with a SWAT team. You know, they'll show up with about eight divisions just annex your country. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a, there's a bigger fear over there than, um, you know. Yeah, they don't mess around over there. They don't mess around. No, they, they bring the heat. And that's not always the best answer, but sometimes, sometimes violence and, and, and military operations is necessary. For instance, Normandy, Normandy invasion, D-Day. They don't even talk about that much. It's, you know, the largest, greatest invasion in military history, in human history. And some people don't even. Well, and the potential lives that it did save, right? Yeah. By ending. Was there any other way to get rid of Hitler? You can't solve terrorism with hugs. That's <laughs> just you know, not, you know, right. it's just not a thing. So when you came back um, and you were released, you were given the Cross of Valor in 1979, and you were given the Purple Heart and a Navy Commendation Medal. What was that like for you? 
that was amazing, uh, Sharon, because uh, <clears throat> I learned about the medals on my flight over here. I mean, uh, for, for my flight from Germany when I was uh, evac'd out. We went to Germany, stayed overnight. They looked at my wounds, and they had to find a uniform for me and everything. And then uh, on the flight, I was briefed about, well, you know, what would happen. And uh, I, I was saying, well, that's, that's amazing. Where's the other Marines? Because I'd never talked to anyone since then. And I said, how about the other accolades that they're going to be getting? And, you know, w- when am I going to see them? He says, well, that's the officer that was, you know, briefing me. It said that it was, um, I said, that's a, above our pay grade. We don't discuss that. Mm-hmm. So he said, uh, he said, you know that this is a, uh, an oncoming election year. And it's just people, when you get off this plane, here's what, here's what to expect. There are pic- cameras and everything. Yeah. Here's and the dog and pony show. Oh, my God. I mean, it was... It was Picture of you hugging your mom, you know? Iconic. <laughs> but uh, to actually, when you, you look at the book and you see the photos of the entire Marine 8th and I band out there, the president's own, and, you know, for them to stand at attention and the band to play, and for you to get a, uh, a salute like that from them and to walk down that ramp knowing that, you know... 72 hours ago, I was minutes away from death. I was doomed to be executed in a firing squad. And now I'm here. I said, is this real? You keep biting your cheek. You say, how does this happen? I said, usually, you know, when you eat, you meet the Commodore, you meet the, uh, you go through the whole dog and pony show, Senator John Hines, um, Secretary of the Navy, Graham Clater, um, all of them there all have, you know, to salute them, put the, put the pin on you, read this, read the citation. And you wonder, you say, usually when... Uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, any kind of veteran does something like this, they vet them first and they check it out and they say, hey, we want to see uh, you know, everything that's involved, who else was involved, et cetera, et cetera. How they went from not knowing where I was in that, that hellhole down there to whirlwind overnight. Now they can, they can come up with this entourage of this. What's going on here? I mean, it, it is overwhelming. It really is. And to know that um, you never got any decent sleep or you know, medication, anything like that. And uh, the stitches that were in my, my chest and my stomach, when my mom ran up to me, I, I could just barely hold on to her. And I go, oh, my God, when I picked her up, you can see it's a, not a normal stance. I had to separate my, my feet boots to hold my back up uh, because otherwise I said, oh, there goes my stitches. Oh, God. No, but <laughs> You just um, finally got them in. They had taped you together. That's <laughs> it. Before, yeah. you know? That was it. And, you know, I said, come all the way back here to, you know, die <laughs> on, the, on the tarmac right? with a hug with from your mom. Yeah. <laughs> What a way to go out. (laughs) So, Constance, I would love to talk to you about how you and Ken got to know each other. There's a restaurant that's um, sort of um, military-themed restaurant here in Woodstock called Semper Fi. Yes, yes. Um, Now they're Rally Point, and they're moving just up the road uh, as we speak, I think, actually. Right, Ken? Yes, I'm right. But, uh, but yeah, we met there on February 1st of this year. it's just, just got chit chatting. Just yeah. got to chit chatting. Well, I was sitting at the end of the bar, and I had just gotten from uh, uh, having a, having a beer and a, and a, and a burger, and the uh, uh, from a uh, Amer- disabled American veterans uh, uh, convention or meeting. Anyway, so I had taken my book bag, which tells you how old I am, <laughs> and I put it on the chair next to me, and all the other chairs were, were taken. And <clears throat> Constance came in, and she looked around. She asked, "Is that seat taken?" I said, "Oh no, ma'am." It, it, uh, be my guest. I said, let me move my book bag. And she kind of giggled, you know, book bag, you know, grand- <laughs> grandpa, things like, nobody carries book bags. But I, but because I was working Well, he had this silly look on his face, too. He's like, please sit next to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, so I moved, I, I moved my quote book bag that had the books in it that I was working on at the time, or at least thinking working on it, the research. And uh, she said, don't you mean a computer bag? I said, yeah, it's got a computer in it, but I'm writing a book. And she goes, oh, you're writing a book. And, and boom, um, because she's had experience in yes. that and has been an author and a publisher. I said, oh, what's the odds of that right there? You know. Yeah, and then we talked about uh, forensics and stuff like exactly. that because he went on to be a, a forensic detective yes, uh, after Roswell the Marine Corps. Yes, at the Roswell Department. Yeah. I saw until 2016. Yeah, she had shown me pictures and we were showing you know photos back and forth. And I, she owns <laughs> yeah. her own forensic cleanup. Yes, yeah, I had does. just come from a cleanup. I, I kind of normally do that. Like I'll go to, you know, just to... Yeah, decompress. Yeah, decompress. And yeah, I like to sit around, you know, people that are respectful and honorable. And it was, he was the first person to ever talk to me in that bar in the year that I had been going there after wow. work. Um, and so I was like, this little guy's got some balls. <laughs> it was hilarious. So I, you know, and I usually go there just to get, you know, a moment to myself, but I, I enjoyed our conversation and we just kind of gave the synopsis of our lives and we like totally broed out. It's, it's kind of an odd friendship. You know, I'm 37, he's 66. Uh, but <laughs> think about how just even being in the friend world how you all can compare like bringing out like looking at your you yeah know, your battle, battle wounds yeah, yeah it's like it's here like, you oh, go I got yeah. this gun you know fight and this blah, blah, blah. I just can't imagine what it was like to talk about things that you only the two of you in that kind of you space. don't often yeah, meet somebody that see you see eye to eye with yeah, exactly. um, especially right off the bat about so many different topics so it was a good conversation for sure and that led to the book. The book. Yes. So Constance, you have, first of all, just the most cool person ever on the planet. <laughs> I'm just such a fan. Um, actor, forensics cleaner, of course. But you just, I didn't even know that you had a publishing side. So you have done some publishing for other authors in the past. Yes, yes. I used to work for third party companies in my early 20s when um, I was actually doing radio. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> you have a great voice for radio. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's kind of what got me into that. Uh, it was it was really random. I was working at a biker bar and uh, the, the old lady that owned it wanted me to give these tickets away for her a concert or whatever. So I didn't know that you just call the sales department. Like oh. I had no idea. I'm like 21 years old. And so I just kept calling up the DJ and I started doing my funny voices and just being like, Hey, give these tickets away. And yeah. that kind of led into radio. Um, Amazing. but I tribute, uh, both of those aspects into being a successful actor, you know, cause I understand my voice, how to throw it. Um, and then character development, what it really means, you know, especially in book publishing, like people can publish all they want. If you don't have a page turner, you're not going to get good reviews. People aren't going to continue to buy it. They're not going to recommend it or anything like that. And so helping to create and craft that through you know, interviews with him that were verbal and his notes and just meshing those things together to, to make it what it was. And, and then in the final publishing process, seeing him go through page after page, because I said, all right, Maureen, Let's read it. <laughs> you yeah. got to read this and you got to read it and criticize it. If I've missed something or I messed something up, now's the time. And he just kept page after page. He's like, great. Great, and it was it was a very emotional experience. It took about four hours for him to go through the whole book and and really um, line um, eyeline it. I was going to ask you as well, like, what is it like as in your sixties going back to your twenty two year old mindset? Like, how did it feel? Did you realize things differently? I don't think about he's ever yourself? matured past twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't either. We're we're kindred spirits then, because I am totally not <laughs> my chronological age. I think I'm Arrested Development. Go way. ahead, answer that one, Ken. Yeah, I had to right. step on you on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, in re in reflection, you look at it and you you're thinking the stuff that you went through that you saw. How does it affect your life now? And then 
uh, you stop for a second, you realize it's a, uh, it's a continuing process that you become, specifically myself, I had created an alter ego. And I didn't realize that. And it, and it, and it suffered in, um, in some of the jobs that I, tried, that I wanted to go for. For instance, air traffic controller, which I was in the, in the military, my first MOS, my first job before I went to embassy duty. And then uh, I just knew I wasn't going to be able to take the stress and have people's lives again sitting in a dark room for 20 years. That and a couple of divorces where you realize this alter ego is something that I'm never going to be a hostage again. That's something you say, hey, I'm not going to be sausage you know, financially. I'm not to, to your emotions. And I had a hard time with people giving me, um, it's, I wouldn't say direction, but ultimatums. You know, I said, it, it's not going to be that way. It's my way or the highway. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to be put into a corner. And I'm always out trying to think people. Mm-hmm. That was, what, what was your uh, initial, I'd say, initial um, emotional thought process when you contacted me about something? What is your intent? What's your motive? Yeah, what's your What's motivation? your motive and your what intent? What do you want from me? They're, exactly. And it was uh, not paranoia, but it was what I, I didn't want to call it paranoia. I just wanted to call, call it heightened awareness, you know, super sensitive. Being cautious, you know. And, I mean, I do the same thing. And the, uh, you're very guarded in your feelings and letting people in. And then even then when you, uh, you share, it's, uh, it's, it's not complete. It's just enough to, you know, get them to feel comfortable with you. And um, going on with that, that's just the emotional part and the mental. Then there's the, uh, there's the physical where you would uh, you hear a certain music or sound, um, I, I, certain smells that would bother me and, uh, you know, curry and things like that. Oh, I love curry, but it's way it's cooked and it, it brings back, it brings back memories. It's visceral, right? It's like a... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, sometimes when, when I see people from the Middle East and uh, dressed in, in their cultural garb, um, I look at them and uh, it wasn't too long ago where I saw one, uh, a female and a, and not a full, not a full burqa, but uh, half, half of it with a, at least a, a, ch- a chador is what we call it. And uh, you could, you know, definitely tell that they were from the Middle East and pushing her cart in, in, uh, in Walmart. I come around the corner and it would never bother me any other day. I don't know why it bothered me that day. Mm-hmm. I just looked at her and, and the first thought came in my mind is that, does she have a baby in that little stroller or does she, it, does she have a bomb in there? Who in their right mind thinks like that? I don't get out of bed, you know, hating people or, or, or loving them any way, which way, shape, or form. But it's t- something like that. And you look at them and you didn't want to, I didn't want to walk by her. I, I didn't know what her face looked like or if she had a baby in that carriage. I just turned my buggy around. I said, oh, we'll come back down this aisle another time. I think it's so interesting how PTSD in itself is so unreasonable. Like you can, you can tell yourself you're safe. You can tell yourself there's nothing that you, there's no reason why you should feel what you're feeling, but there's like completely irrational responses, but they're still very real. You know, the sights and the sounds and the smells, all of those things I can imagine bring, can bring you right back to a place of fight or flight. Yeah, and then other days they don't bother you. Yeah. You know, and you've got good days and bad days. And, and, and that's right. Uh, why does your brain do that? If you knew something that triggers you, you, you stay away from it, Okay. Not so much, but sometimes in your subconscious things will just pop in, especially in your sleep. You know, you say, you know, why, why do you wake up screaming? You know, why, do you, why are you sweating like you know so bad? And sometimes you don't know, and then um, it, it'll keep it'll keep you awake for a while. And you say, now this is instead of having a nice you know slumber sleep and waking up refreshed, ready to do your itinerary for the next day, it's now interrupted. You, that has now changed your lifestyle 
and you know you're going to be a little cranky. You know you're going to put some Bailey. You know why? You're going to put some Bailey's, Bailey's in, in your, your coffee. coffee? <laughs> Sounds like a plan. No kidding. So you were in the Marine Corps until 1986, and um, in at, like I think it was from 95 until 2016, you were a detective a detective with the Roswell Police Department here in Georgia. How did your experience impact your being a, a detective? That's interesting because uh, I've often <laughs> thought myself is that why would you go back in and do something so stressful, um, something that there's so much a high level of liability nowadays and, um, and, and dangerous, you know, at, at dangerous at times. And it, it boiled down to saying um, what drew me into it was that I went to work for the Department of Energy, a nuclear SWAT officer. We transport nuclear materials around the country, long story short. And through that, uh, working and uh, going to conventions and going to SWAT competitions, I met people in the law enforcement, civilian part of the field. I moved here uh, to Atlanta. So, you know, when I hooked up with the Roswell Police Department, um, it didn't take me long at all from going from a, a foot soldier, uh, uniformed police, to a detective. I just had natural um, instincts about it, and I focused on it. And I really liked forensics at the time. The OJ symptom trial from 94, 95, the CSI. Before that, people didn't know what CSI I was. Know, right? they, they couldn't even spell it. <laughs> and then two years later, you got every city in, a, every yeah. city, you know, in America has got it. You know, a CSI you, department. Yeah, yes. exactly. And so, and uh, plus the uh, the technology is coming out. DNA was now you know you know out on, out there for every, to look at, and they started vetting you know fingerprints and and some of the uh, uh, disciplines in CSI, and it it was long overdue, and I'm glad it did. You know, so and you now, were there for all of that. Oh, absolutely. So with that saying, is that I'm saying people ask me, I said, I you know, I just wanted to continue to serve. I felt like the rug was pulled out from under me. And I never went back at embassy duty and that wherever I went after embassy duty, um, I would always have a stigma. It's like, hey, you know who he is? You know who he is? And, and it's, yeah, my name's Ken Krause. I'm, a, I'm now a staff sergeant. I said, but, uh, you know, as I move along, but you're always going to have that stigma of being the person at that time when it went down. So when that stopped and, um, you know, and I got out of the Marine Corps, it was, uh, I still had a hole in my life where I didn't have, I didn't have a job or I didn't have an identity to be something where I'm, I'm still serving the public. And it, it just fell into being a forensic detective. And I was good at it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm not so much of an author, but I've a lot of people still come to me with uh, things saying, how would you do it this way? And um, how would you work, you know, this type of you know, crime scene? Wait, I heard a rumor that you once got a fingerprint off of a grape. That's true. <laughs> and I, I, I wrote the in a forensic magazine. I wrote the uh, synopsis of how that happened. Holy captured a God. captured a burglar <laughs> from uh, yeah. a grape. Yep, from a grape. And that's was, incredible. He was. You were good at it. He was hanging out with this grape for what, like a week? It was yeah, your little buddy absolutely. grape. Absolutely. <laughs> one, one grape, and it was a, it was called the uh, the lunchtime bandit. And they nicknamed him that because he was going from Roswell, Alpharetta, Sandy Springs. He would. He's a. Uh, he's like a cat burger. He would case the place, very professional, and he'd make he'd make entry uh, usually without damaging to anything. And he would go in, and he he had a knack for looking at uh, women's uh, jewelry and, and and telling the difference between the good stuff and and the and the uh, costume stuff. And he wouldn't he wouldn't wreck the place. He'd just take what he needed, and usually he would make himself a sandwich or he'd have something to eat out of your refrigerator, leave it there. And when you came back to work you know, from home, you go, who the heck's been in my house? It was, uh, anyway, so uh, what happened is that 
a young lady had, uh, a mother had left her uh, some fruit out on, on the table for her daughter who lived right near uh, uh, the Roswell High School. And she usually comes home for lunch, walks across the street, whatever, and, and has lunch or something like that. Well, that day she has something to do with, um, uh, in school, high school. And uh, she didn't get over there for that day. Okay, well, he had just happened to hit that house. And the mother didn't realize when she came home, okay, because some of the fruit had been eaten. When, uh, <clears throat> anyway, she talked to her daughter and said, uh, oh, yeah, you like that fruit today we had today, et cetera. Said, oh, mom, I didn't get a chance to come home. I'm sorry, whatever. She said, what, what? So oh who's you know, been in that, my house? Who's been, yeah, who's been, eating, who's been eating my porridge? <laughs> so she called the police, and anyway, so they initiated, yeah, and she goes, yep, sure, sure enough, there's been, uh, somebody's been in here, and, you know, this is missing. So she started making a list of what's missing. She goes, man, we've been robbed. I said, burglarized, but, you know, same, mm -hmm. it's, uh, technically. So my sergeant asked me to go over, and uh, I sat down. You know, there's nothing I could do, no evidence, no fingerprints, nothing. I mean, it was a forensically naked is what we called it. But then the next day, when she was cleaning in her kitchen, she had uh, underneath, I think it was the stove or the uh, refrigerator, she saw a grape. And she went to pick the grape up. And she said, oh, wait a minute. Somebody touched that grape. And it wasn't her and it wasn't her daughter. So she called my, she called my sergeant and, uh, and got through to him and was telling him about this. And he said, okay, ma'am, don't touch it. You know. So he calls me to his office and he says, uh, you know how to get fingerprints off of a grape? And I'm sitting down thinking, is this a punchline or, you know, I'm waiting for the joke here. And he goes, no. And he, he tells me what he had. I said, well, that's going to be a new one on me. So I went over there and I, I sure, sure enough. And he captured the grape, you know, photographed it. Captured the grape. <laughs> <laughs> and took it into custody. <laughs> With little grape handcuffs. <laughs> make it say, and, and then, I'm going to make you wine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was a dead joke. Nice. <laughs> It comes, with, it comes with the territory. <laughs> anyway, oh, so God, this, uh, it says, um, uh, anyway, so we said, well, what's the possibility of this? And I said, I don't know. So I contact people, GBI and FBI, and nobody knows. And he goes, we ha better hurry up because that grape's going to turn into a raisin after so, <laughs> after so long, you know. And uh, so what I did is went and got... Uh, went and got similar type of grapes from the grocery store and tried different forensic um, uh, mechanics on it. And what worked out best was that um, it was to use uh, cyanoacrylate, which is basically a, a fume it with uh, super glue is what happens. And it sticks. But then when you try to take a photograph of it, you're not going to be able to peel that grape off to use it, you know, the skin. So basically... Uh, I, when you would try to photograph it, it, it was, it, it was, show. you know, mm -hmm. so, but it would, if you, if you used, uh, fluorescent fingerprint powder. Okay. Interesting. And yeah. And then under a certain nanometers, um, of, uh, of ultraviolet light, it was able to be photographed with a special lens and photographers that, you know, been in through that, they'll realize under a certain light and it glowed and it was beautiful. And it gave me, it, it looked just like, I can almost tell you what two fingers he used, but you know, no on the way. side, on the side of that grape. Did you catch this guy? Ma'am? You caught the, you caught the oh, guy? Well, what happens is we, we take the, we get the fingerprint and we run it through the APHIS, you know, machine. Yes. And basically it's not like what you see on television. It's, you know, where these two, uh, Patterns, you know. Yeah, they match. And, and, and they match like, no, they, I wish I had that. Really, yeah. <laughs> it looks Maybe fun some, to look at. Yeah, really. Yeah, can, yeah Hollywood. Anyway, but uh, yeah, to, uh, to to get that and then to put it on a digital a digital mat and run it through, you get a you get a, a list of potential Great. fingerprint. Um, narrows it down. The people narrows it down. So you say, well, no, this one's not here. He doesn't live here. This one, uh, he passed away. This one's still incarcerated. How about these two? 
And then after those two, they go, oh, yeah, run his rap sheet. And what do you think? What do you think's been? Burglary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder who I it could know. be. So then we take the fingerprint and we give it, to, we give it uh, for peer review. And we said, okay, we send it to, to the GBI and tell them nothing about it. Let them run it the same way. Boom. Who do you think they come back oh, with? Oh, you are kidding. Let's try it one more time. Send it to the FBI. Boom. They come back. So we're three for three. Yes. You know, it's enough to get a warrant and then, uh, you know, out, out it goes. And Look at you. Look at what you did. Yeah, got lucky. Think about this, though. You have a, a, a spirit to serve and help, you know, whether it's within the military or within the police department and helping people feel safe. Absolutely. That's it's part a, of who you are. It's a very rewarding um, attribute, and I'm, I'm glad I'm lucky and I'm blessed to have it. But, people um, and puppies. Yeah. He loves his really? dogs. Yes. Aww. He saves animals all the time. Aww. When I was going through his Facebook yeah. and checking it out, I was like, I just was like, oh, you're like this. I never looked at your whole timeline before. It's nothing but puppy dogs and oh, military I memes. I look at them and, and I see them in their cage and I've been in a cage. So I, I, I can feel for them, you know. And uh, so it's a, I try to, I'll take them home and uh, I'll find them, uh, I'll work with one and, and, and then find them a, a foster home like that, a forever home, and then we'll go back and do it again. What are you hoping will happen as a result of this book? Actually, this, I want to get this out and I would like to see it, you know, in a production mode, in a, in a, in a, in a movie. And uh, I don't know who the heck would play me, but I mean... We Brad could, Pitt we for see. sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he's going to have to be a young guy. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and to get it out and to let people um, see what it's like to uh, go through uh, a trial of, of fire and hell and not give up on anything. Because when, when you read the book, there's at least seven different areas there of miracles. And in the end of the book, you'll see it says miracles, believe in them. If any one of those events, if you want to call them, okay, ironic events happen a different way, the world would be different for me and I wouldn't be here. So just the timing of exactly those things that happened, what could have went wrong, what didn't go wrong, and what specifically had to happen for this domino effect to go positive, it's all miracle after miracle after miracle. And if you don't believe that, then it's, uh, you know, it's, there's, you got an emptiness in you. Well, it, you lived it. Absolutely. You know it. So... I mean, I just I have faith now. I mean, um, you can hope for things like that, but you mean you have to have the uh, the faith of like what they said in a Bible the, of a mustard seed. You have to know it's going to grow and nurture it, believe it, see it, make it happen, live it, smell it, you know, act it. And there's no there's no downside to that whatsoever. You know, it's just a matter of you know the, the clock ticking and the world spinning. Just a matter what of time. What does it cost you? What does it cost you to have that attitude? I just can't imagine not having hope. You know, I mean, at one point there, I knew that. Uh, I could figure out all the logical ways that you know, that no one's going to know I was there, and if if it is my fate, then then that's why I, I went, at, you know, and I, and I prayed that hey, you know, just send the body back home, don't make a mess of it, and uh, don't lie about me. Just say, hey, you know, he came over here, he stuck his nose in where it don't belong, he was a he was an invader. Call me what you want, you know. Everybody know I was a marine and I died in the line of duty, but uh, as long as it went out with like Constantad with with a a degree of honor, you know, they say, and that's the, that's what the, the long blue line of uh, a Marine Corps has. I mean, that's, that's our fighting spirit. That's our traditional heritage, uh, the way it is. And the, the baton was passed to me that day and I'm just glad I didn't drop it. Constance, do you ever think the, the, the serendipity 
the moment of meeting and how that leads you. Well, this has happened in so many yeah. different times yeah. of your life. Yeah. It is kind of crazy <laughs> when you think about it. It's like that is your theme. But you also are a go-getter. Like you saw an opportunity to really help this man. And now here you are. Yeah. And now here we are doing it. Yeah. 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 Pushing it forward and keeping going. You know, it's like I, I needed this friendship in my life at, at this time throughout this whole last year, just as much as he did, you know, and, and being able to be a part of telling his story and, and helping to produce it, uh, is, you know, it's been amazing. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful. Like, and I do see like a future in a movie potential on it, you know, like, I, you know, helped design and lay out the book just to start with the firefight, go back and forth with his memories and stuff like that. So, so it is that page turner that we were talking about earlier and not just, you know, your typical biography where I was born on yeah, this day. And then this happened. Yeah. And then, happened. And then we have to yeah. get, you know, five chapters oh, in yeah, to like figure anything you out. You refer to your father often, Ken, um, in the book about kind of how that relationship informed the different thought processes you had during your time in, as a hostage and, and some of these really very deeply spiritual moments, but to not have the context of that, it doesn't impact the same way. So I appreciate that you went back into his history. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is uh, when he was, you know, giving me his writings and stuff like that, and I was looking over him he would, he would hand some stuff over to me and, and he'd be like, you're not going to think any different of me. I just finished some of this prison stuff. And, and I was like, no, man, like I've been through, I see a lot and I've been through a lot in my life. And when I was shaping the book out, what was the hardest part for me was the love he had for his father. That was the hardest part. All the torture stuff, all that, you know, like that didn't bother. I mean, it's a horrible thing, but, you know, just saying like what bothered me the most was, um, you know, the fact that he loved his father so much and I never had that in my life. I wish I could have said that Um, or at least had one parent that I could have said that about. And uh, and, and it was, uh, you know, that was a sad part for him to lose his father at 16. Yes. But he's always with you in spirit. He is, and he speaks to you. You sure. hear him. You hear him. You can hear it. I mean, people say no. That's not a voice. You can not. You can hear a voice, but it's it's a uh, it's a deep inner impact of you feel it and hear it at the same time. It's almost like telepathy. I think you know. It's it's, it's coming it's from outside. You sense it as if much as much as when you talk to yourself and you have to make a, a list of things you have to do today. You 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 hear yourself talking about it. I mean, that's normal. But then to hear somebody else, you know, like your father or somebody close talking to you say, wow. And they are changing the aspect of the, the issues. Because you would have chosen differently. Exactly. There's one point in the book where you hear him say to you, pray, son, pray for what your heart wants most in the situation. Believe it, see it, know it, command it, and it shall be. That was so moving to me. In the, in, the, in the very first day of what was happening to yeah. you, you felt your father and you heard those words and the comfort that you got from that. And that's where, uh, when I, I, in the caravanser, I was in the bathroom and I said, hey, you know, it's uh, the deepest thing I've ever asked for in my life, you know, and then went from him to actually prayer to, you know, to the Lord. And I said, this, this is it. Um, I can't ask for anything else. I can't buy this. I can't rent this. There's no other way to earn this. It just has to be given, given as a gift. And when um, he comes by, he says, you have to believe it, but you got to believe in yourself and you have to know what do you want most. And that's when I said, you know what? I'll sacrifice my life mm-hmm. for just the other let 20. Me get, let me just get all these people out of here. Yeah. They don't deserve this. And um, when in the book where I'm talking to the other two Marines and we're realizing, you know, that 
one more assault and uh, we're going to be out of ammo and it's going to be hand to hand. And he said, then, uh, you know, they're going to slaughter these people back here. And they were standing right there in the corner and a couple of overheard it. Now, how embarrassing do you mm. think that is? I mean, mm. I didn't realize, you know, it, it, in the environment there that these people just realized, you know, that their lives are in our hands. As soon as we died, they're coming minutes later. And uh, that's not, not something I could deal with. So whatever it took to whatever to uh, every spiritual realm or to even call about my dad, is I said, uh, you know, what do you got for me? How can you get me out of this? I mean, help me. Do you mind if I quickly talk about the um, the Palestinian, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is happening right now? Do you mind if we talk about it briefly? No, ma'am, how does all. How does your experience... Um, being a hostage and and really understanding um, the conflicts that happened during that time, how does that inform your understanding and your opinion about what's happening right now? Opinions are tough because uh, I've been through Israel um, several times. I've trained with some of their, their military. Uh, I see uh, some of the terrorism that that they that they face. Uh, there's always going to be a political point of view that um, you have countries, you know. Um, like Iran, you know, state-sponsored. Uh, you have you have Syria, you have Lebanon. They all have their identity as a country. They got a flag, they got a government, they got a they got a culture. You know, and uh, for the last 50, 50 something years, uh, the place where they call Palestine, it really never existed. It was it was and the historical value of it, people won't take it into context. They just assume that you know somebody's stealing stealing their land. Well. It's basically all those other countries that use them, the Palestinians, as cannon fodder. And you'll see that the other countries are now basically at uh, a uh, impromptu or say a, a, a de facto uh, section of war, and they're not fighting against Israel. But yet you get these political terrorists like the Hamas mm-hmm. and the Hezbollah. They take over a country, and they're literally running it. And uh, they're going to run it right into the ground. You and they'll use them to fight and kill uh, the Israelis uh, over the land that no one wants to go back to work out in, 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 a, in a amicable way for both sides. If you don't go back to the beginning of how it got there, all you're going to do is keep kicking that can down the road. And with Habas and Hezbollah, you can see what they do. They just they attack and they attack and they teach their children, okay, how to die and how to be martyrs. Israeli children... They don't learn that. That's that's not what they learn. And you know, you know, with that being said, is that you'll you'll look at the Hamas goes into you know the area in, in Gaza and do they build them roads or schools? And no, they don't. You know, they'll build them some mosques. That it. But um, the roads, hospitals, no, they don't. They don't build them. You know, you see the little kids running around learning how to throw stones and learn how to hate the Israelis and how to hate everybody else and anybody that supports Israel. So. You know, that just, and there's always a lull. You'll see every few years, you know, you had the 56 uh, Sinai War, then you had the 67-day war, and you had the 73 Yom Kippur War, and then the 83 up there in uh, 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 in Tefra, uh up in Lebanon. And it's just, you know. It's cycle, 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 cycle. Cycle, and cycle, cycle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get a, you get a terrorist-type organization that is run by state-sponsored, and we know that uh, Hezbollah comes from Iran. And now what Iran's trying to do, build a nuke. Now, they get their hands on nuclear material, nuclear weapon. What is the first country you think they're going to use it on? I'll let you take a guess with that one. So if you don't watch them and, you know, keep a leash on them, it can get out of hand somewhere where, you know, 9-11 is going to look like a picnic, God forbid, compared to a uh, small tactical nuke somewhere. 
There's only about three cities in Israel. I mean, that's about it. You know, I don't think that they would deliberately do it to Jerusalem because it's that's a very holy place for a lot of a lot of religions. But Tel Aviv, Ashkod, you know, there's any one of them could go. You know, so you got to keep a you got to keep an alert on it. And if people would go back and look at where the 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 brunt of this started, I think that they'll be able to admit what the truth is. And it would take a lot of the hate and that is uh, fomented um, by outside agencies like Hamas and Hezbollah and take them out of the equation. And when you do that, you're going to find people that are basically back to their Bible, their basic roots of, of Islam, basic you know, roots of you know, being Hebrew, and knowing that they, they can get along. And when they can get along, then uh, they don't have to fight like they're doing today. But you ignore it, you're going to have to pay that bill again every few years. It's interesting, too, because what you're talking about is is taking uh, away all of the political aspects of it, but looking at people as just the humans that they are, which is, I think, what you're so good at in the book with you and, and Constance together writing it in a way that helps to really humanize something that we can talk about in a Wikipedia way, but we're talking about the human aspect of it. And hopefully that will encourage just a, a great deal of compassion and understanding and a willingness to look at everyone as just humans, which is what we are on the planet, you know, not just people who are trying to win, you know, or use their force or don't care if they, anyone suffers. That's right. So I really appreciate your being willing to be so vulnerable in the book as well with, it was with me today. And Constance, thank you so much for um, helping him to write this book. Oh, and I can't wait to see where it'll go. Ken Krauss, thank you so much for coming into Business Radio X and sharing your story. If anyone wanted to get in touch with you or Constance Payne, what would be the best way? You're going to want to go to www.kenkraus.com. Uh, you could always shoot an email to ken at kenkraus.com uh, for any type of media or book signings or, you know, we're, that's what we're really looking at right now is where can we get Ken um, at any other events that are so we can you know set up a book table and have him be able to sign his autographs and sign his books for his fans excellent well if there's any way I can help you I would love to Thank you've done you so, so much. much today is a healing every time I can sit and talk and I let people appreciate what I've gone through it's one more inch that I healed thank you Sharon well my goodness thank you it's an honor Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Fearless Formula on Business Radio X. And again, this is Sharon Klein reminding you with knowledge and understanding, we can all have our own fearless formula. Have a great day.